You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. So we're going to look at this passage in Isaiah 40. And it's a, it's a pretty cool passage about who God is and how he created things. So if you could, fi- find your seat. Um, you could finish up getting coffee or bagels or whatever. That, that's totally fine. But if you, if you are sitting down, you can turn to Isaiah 40 or you could just look up at the screens. And it says this. It's very poetic. It's about the awesomeness of God and how he is totally big and how we are kind of small. And it says this, verse 21 of Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, talking about God, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them all like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Let's pray. God, we do thank you. We put you in your rightful place. And we say that you are God and we are definitely not. We worship you as your creation. We worship um, you as, as the creator God. God, we, we love you. As we, as we look at how you created and continue this talk about the, the Bible and how it it's, uh, should be interpreted and, and how you created things on this earth, God, we worship you. We put you in your rightful place as creator. We love you and praise you. And everybody screamed. Amen. Pretty good. Um, so, so we are all this month, we're in this topic of evolution versus creationism. And and this is actually the third of the, of four talks. And so you're, you're coming, if you're, if you're new to Sunday school now, you're coming along the way as we've already started. And a couple of weeks ago, I gave kind of my testimony of, of when I, when I became a Christian, which was in high school in 10th grade. And a part, a lot of my story is that I was thinking through the issues of creationism versus evolution, thinking through science versus did, did God create all this? Did God design it or did it happen somewhat by chance or by accident and then form or naturally select itself? Um, how did this all come into being? And in high school, I really made the decision that there was a creator, there was a designer to all of this. And I became a very strict uh, six-day literal creationist in high school in 10th grade. I was very convinced of that. I read the Bible. I thought the Bible was very literal on this issue. And I stuck with that interpretation of scripture um, for a very long time. And, and some of you, last week we voted on, you know, what are you? And we, we asked the question, are you a young earth? Or are you an old earth or anything in between? And a lot of you asked me last week and then throughout the week, hey, Joe, what are you? You know, you've asked us to vote, but uh, did you vote? What, what are you? And so I want to answer that question that kind of in a, in a story form, because in high school, my, my testimony is really surrounded with this idea that I believed in a creator God. And, and for me, that was a six-day literal creation uh, model, and I was a six-day literal creationist all through high school, started college, um, and became a biology major in college. These are all my textbooks from college, science textbooks. Wow. The real question is, why didn't I sell them back? Because now they're almost 10 years old, and so that we're looking at, like at the time, probably a little more than $1,000. And for some reason, I was like, I don't want $1,000. I want these books. (laughs) Which now, like 10 years later, I'm like, well, at least I get to bring them to Sunday school and show them off once in my life. So it's like, here's a $1,000 sermon illustration right there. So hopefully you enjoy. But so those are, those are my textbooks. And all through college, all four years of my college, I was a literal six-day creationist. So if someone ever asks you or tells you, you can't study science and not be an evolutionist. Well, I did it. I I went through four years of college and then graduated. Here's a picture of me on graduation day. Look at my sweet beard. Isn't that a sweet beard? I don't know what I was thinking back then. 
Um, but that, that's me and my dad on, on graduation day from Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. I got my bachelor's of science in biology and um, went all four years as a literal young earth creationist that the earth is only six years, excuse me, 6,000 years old. And he created it in about six, uh, six literal days, as it says in Genesis chapter one. And what's interesting is the week I, after I graduated um, college, I, I joined a Bible study. And in this Bible study, it was like the leaders of the church. Uh, the leader and the, the church was this uh, college ministry. And so I was one of the leaders in this college ministry. And the, the, the pastor ha- got brought together the leaders and said, we're going to study the Bible. We're going to go through the Bible. You need to buy a Bible commentary. Does anybody have a Bible commentary that they own? Yeah, and so I didn't at the time. I, I bought one. It was a one volume. It's called the New Bible Commentary. Really good Bible commentary. And Bible commentaries are just people commenting on Scripture. And so they usually are, are versed in the original languages. They're usually versed in the history of the passages. And so they have something to say. Um, and so if you look at a passage, you're just like, I wonder what someone else thinks about this. You can read what they think. And then you could gather commentaries. And you could have more than one. And you could look at what different people might say. And so that's what a commentary is. And so I bought one for the very first time, and I was studying Genesis. And in my study of Genesis, I I came to this conclusion that um, there's people out there, Christians out there, that don't believe in a literal um, six-day creationism model of how God created. And and, and I just thought those were like crazy liberal people. Um, But here I had this commentary that that I trusted, and the commentary just said, here's some different views, and it opened my eyes up to different views. And so this is just a week after I graduated with a scientific biology degree. I saw for the first time, oh, there's different views of creation and, and evolution. And, and all throughout college, my mind was just this battle between science and Bible. Science, Bible. Science says this. Bible says this. And so there was a lot of wrestling in my own mind as well as my conversations with teachers and other students. And to me, it was very much science is good and awesome and cool, but it contradicts the Bible in some ways. And so there's this battle always in my head all the four years of college of science and the Bible. But after I graduated, it's just literally a week later, I I saw, like, let's just look at the Bible. And this commentary opened my eyes up to this this thing in in the book of Genesis where there's these different phrases. Uh, This is the account of in the book of Genesis. There's actually 10 of these. This is the account of. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Uh, As it says in Genesis 2-4, the account of heavens and the earth, when the earth was created, when the Lord God made uh, the earth and the heavens. That's the first one of the 10. And then there's this is the account of Noah. This is the account of Abraham. This is the account of Ishmael. This is the account of Isaac. This is the account of Jacob. Throughout the book of Genesis, there's 10 of these. And of course, the book of Genesis was written at a time when they didn't have chapter markings or verse markings. Those were added in later. And so these were the major like sections of the book of Genesis. There's 10 of them. And what's interesting is that the book of Genesis doesn't begin with, this is the account of how the heavens were created. It begins with um, just the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is just kind of interesting because this commentator went on to say that maybe Genesis 1 is just a preamble, a, a poetic preamble to a literal story. And so the literal part um, kind of starts with Genesis 2-4. This is the account of. And then it continues on with this narrative of, of uh, you know, Abraham and goes to Joseph, etc., etc. Um, instead, and so this Genesis 1 was just a preamble. And so here I am, a week after graduating, still have all these books um, like out and, and ready to go um, because I had my biology degree certificate in hand. And, and that day. I remember it just took an afternoon of like reading and studying that I became, I guess what I would, I would say now is like I would lean more towards an old earth creation model than a young earth creation model. And it wasn't because it was science and the Bible and science won. It was more, let's look at the Bible. And from the context of the Bible, can we say that this is literal or not literal? Can, can we make that decision? Um, from the context of scripture. And so that's really where we're going with today and um, as far as next week 
goes, because we are meeting next week, um, on th- it'll be Thanksgiving weekend, it'll be the conclusion of evolution and creationism, and, and today we'll, we'll get to hermeneutics and exegesis, and then next time in the Mill Sunday School, we'll, we'll really take a, a look at Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and say, is this a literal, is, from the context of this ancient world, is this literal, or is it figurative, is it a scientific text, is it not, what is it? And so we'll really, I think we're kind of in some ways in the Mill Sunday School saving the best for last because we have been talking about science and the Bible, science and the Bible. Now we're just going to talk about the Bible, which is saving the best for last. Anybody like the Bible? Yeah, I'm a fan of the Bible. All right. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, if you're new to Mill Sunday School, you could fill out a card. They're on most of the tables. If you bring it to the people as you leave, we'll give you a CD. CD is uh, some worship music from our Friday night meetings, Friday nights is the mill. That's our 20-somethings ministry here at New Life Church. That's our main meeting. However, this Friday, there will be no mill. We take it off. We give the staff and leaders uh, the, the break because it's the day after Thanksgiving. So you can go celebrate um, by buying stuff on Black Friday because we're capitalists and we love to buy stuff. Whatever. <laughs> Lighten up, everybody. All right. <clears throat> Let's do a review of where we've been. Um, review of... This evolution creation talk. We are creationists. Anybody a creationist in here? We should all, I mean, unless you're visiting and you're like, yeah, I'm not really sure about this church thing. Um, If you're in here and you're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, we are all creationists. And so we are creationists because we believe in God and then out of God came his creation. Where where did it come from? What came from God? He created ex nihilo, which means... Out of nothing, it's a Latin term. And, and so anything like matter, um, a light, a, like where does it ultimately come from? It comes from God. God himself created it. Where does energy ultimately come from? It comes from God. Um, and and so, so there is questions about maybe how did he create, and we'll get to that later. But there's no, we believe in God as creator. The Nicene Creed says, begins with, we believe in one God, maker of the heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. He created it all. And so... This is an in-house talk, an in-house discussion of how he created. I've been putting up this statement uh, in the Mill Sunday School. Christianity believes in a creator, so we are all creationists. However, there is debate over how he created. And so the the, the debate over how is is still the in-house conversation. If you're in here and you're a Christian, you believe in the Bible, then then whether you're a young earth or an old earth, whether you're a young earth or a progressive creationist or a theistic evolutionist, we'll get to that in a second. um, Whatever you are, it's still an in-house conversation. We're not going to kick you out if you raise your hand and you're like, yeah, I I think, you know, Genesis 1 might be not so literal. We're we're not going to say, get us thee out, Satan, and go us thee into the depths of hell get out of here we wouldn't do that this is an in-house conversation just like we shouldn't if you're an old earth creationist you shouldn't like if if someone at your table is a young earth creationist you're like you're so dumb you can't shouldn't represent christianity get the outest satanist um no we just don't where if this is an in-house conversation um there is no debate over god as creator there is some discussion, debate over how he created. And so I put up this slide last week, views within creationism, we're all creationists. At the top, we have the Bible, and the Bible, uh, a literal take on the Bible. At the bottom, there's uh, less of a literal take on the Bible and more of a, I guess, uh, findings and observations of the world around us, scientific observations. And so we have these four views, uh, young earth, and then, and then there's three uh, old earth views, those are the colored ones, the gap theory, the progressive creationism, and the theistic evolution. And to quickly, I, I spent all last week, all, a whole hour going over just these four things. So, But quickly, a young earth creationism is a, is a literal six-day six creation account. And, and in the old, various old earth models, the gap theory says that it's still a literal six-day creationism, but there was a gap of time between, potentially between verses 2 and 3 or 1 and 2 uh, of, of, the, of Genesis chapter 1 where God created the heavens and the earth, period. And then there was like billions of years. And then he started forming the earth. And so that's why the earth might look old. Uh, progressive creationism says that 
there maybe like the day age theory, if you're familiar with this, or if you came last week, there's six days in which God created. Each one of those days could be more of a of a time period, an error, and so God created progressively. Uh, and then theistic evolution says um, the the book of Genesis is all just figurative, and and God may have created life and then life may have evolved of course god was protecting and guiding preserving his creation along the way but it's kind of a full embrace of science and the science that we know the evolutionary theories as we know them and and saying that the bible is figurative so and last week we all voted if you were here i I made you i forced you to vote on one of the and most of you were really good about I, i think a lot of you voted for one of them But so many of you after Sunday school last week came up and said, can we be in between some of these views? Can we be kind of a progressive creationist and a theistic evolution? Can we be a young earth that maybe kind of believes in a gap theory? Can we make combinations thereof of these four things? Anybody want to make a combination? Yeah, so there's quite a few of us that are like, yeah, I'm somehow combining an old earth and a young earth model in some unique way because there's positives and negatives of each one of these views. So which brings me, um, because four of you, one, two, three, four of you, after the Mill Sunday School last week, came up and said that you think that the earth was created, so you're a young earther, but you believe the earth was created with age already in it. Anybody think that as well? I mean, if four of you came up and said, dude, I have this great idea. Um, the earth was created, it's young earth, so it's a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, but it was created with age, therefore that's why it looks old. Some of you have that view? Yeah. And so, and so, and so that view, I looked it up because four of you said it, and so as maybe more people have this view. I looked it up, and it's called this, the Apollos theory, that the earth is young but created with age. And so if you're taking notes, if you have the, I think I had some notes up here. If you're taking notes and uh, you, you open it up, there's the Apollos theory. You could write down the earth is young, but created with age. And so it's a literal young earth model that, that God created in six literal days, but he created it to, to like as if it was an already in motion. He created it as if it was old. And some of the ideas that could go along with this are God created a man and a woman. He didn't create babies you're like okay how does that make any sense well he created like a man already has some years to his life and so he created this thing that looked old and yet was was not old it was only a day old when he created it on the sixth day but it was a man as as if it had already been living for x amount of years and so maybe I, i always picture adam with hair does everybody else picture adam with hair and fingernails how long does it take hair and fingernails to grow months weeks whatever and so that's, I mean, if, if Adam was created as a man and not a baby, then it just leads, lends itself towards, oh, well, maybe the earth itself was created in such a way that the earth was created as already formed, as already seemingly old, and yet it was only young. And so the Apollos theory, this, this Greek word, Apollos, means belly button. <laughs> it does. It's, it means navel. And, and so you could look at, on the front of the, the skillet, it's somewhat of a, it looks like an inappropriate picture, but it's not. The arrow is pointing to his belly button. Did Adam have a belly button? And that's, that's this idea of the theory that if Adam was born, then he obviously would have had to have a belly button because it was attached to an umbilical cord. But if he was never born, then did Adam have an, a belly button? A good question. Anybody ever asked that question? Did Adam have a belly button? It's a great question to ask. It's almost like a joking, cool, funny question to ask. And, and uh, as some of you know, me and uh, another pastor here at the church, we wrote a book. It's not out yet. It comes out in January in a couple months. It's called The College Adventure Handbook, The Ultimate Guide for Surviving College, Building a Strong Faith, and Getting a Hot Date. <laughs> it's, so, it's, so this is the cover. It comes out in uh, January. But we, we thought one of the issues that college students really struggle with is when they go to science class or philosophy class and they learn about different totally different worldviews than than the biblical worldview what do we what should we do with that and so one of the chapters is is called did adam have a belly button and this is actually because i like illustrations i like books with pictures and so our book has a lot of pictures in it and so this is one of the pictures in our book um did adam have a belly button and it's just this question that kind of lends itself to the Apollos theory that, that God created things 
with already age in them. And so maybe the Apollos theory would say, yes, Adam did was created with a belly button as if he had been born, um, which is just kind of interesting to think about. But then you l- lends itself to other questions. Like, does anyone know what the closest star is to Earth? <laughs> it's kind of a trick question. The sun, yeah. Uh, the sun is the closest star, tricking you. Um, and the, the sun is 93 million miles away. And so for light from the sun to reach the earth, 93 million miles away, it takes about 8.3 minutes. And so if God created sun on the fourth day, he, he created the sun and the moon and the stars on the fourth day. And when he created it, did it take 8.3 minutes for then the light to come to the earth? It's a good question. A better question would be, what about uh, the, the closest star besides the sun? This star is called the Alpha Centauri, located about 4.37 light years away. That's 41.5 trillion kilometers away. And so this light from this star takes 4.37 years to get to the earth. And so if God, and this is the closest star besides the sun, to the earth. And so if God created stars, the sun, moon, and the stars on the fourth day, did, did, did Adam or whoever on the earth, did they, Adam and Eve, did they not see the stars, at least this star because it's the closest one, until 4.37 years later? Everybody say, that's a good question. It is. And then what about like, that's the closest star. What about stars that are thousands of light years away or there's stars that are millions of light years away? How in the world are we watching them if the earth is only 6,000 years old? Well, then it gets into this idea. Well, God must have not just created the star, but also created light on its way to the earth so that we could see them. Because, I mean, potentially now, if we're just seeing stars that are millions of years old, the star could be gone by now it could have blown up and supernova away and we're just watching the light now but it passed away the star died a million years ago you're all just looking at me like what is he saying i don't get it let's maybe a, a, a view closer to home is this idea that um the earth looks old like canyons or wind erosion or how things erode it seems like, oh, the plate tectonics, blah, 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 whatever. It seems like the rocks, that, the, how rocks form, it seems like they're very old. And so maybe God created, uh, he didn't just create water running in a river. He created the canyon already there with water running in it. Which then just begs the question about, okay, what about, you know, if we look at the, the layers of rock and we find that, oh, this layer of rock is very old, but God just created it as old. Then why in the world are there like dino bones in there? And, and why would, you know, why would God just put dino bones in the earth? Let's say dinos never really lived. The, the bones are just there. God just put them there as if the earth was old and as if God created them in the earth. It's like, could God just do that to confuse us or to amuse us or just to mess, like, so we could get cool movies like Jurassic Park? Like, why, like, then it just becomes, why would God, why is it that way? Is it, are we in some way doing like a, we would be accused, if we did that theory, if you hold to the Apollos theory, you would probably be accused of doing pseudoscience, that you have this view and then try to form evidence to that view, that you have this view, the, the earth is young, but it was created old. And so therefore everything that's old was just already created into it. You're putting evidence into this view, which, which becomes, I think, very confusing and weird. And, and so I, I'm really not a fan of the Apollos theory. Uh, some of you maybe are, um, but I, I would not be a fan because maybe a quote like this, Isaac Newton, kind of the, the father of modern science. Oh, he's always listed as like one of the top 10 people, influential people that have ever existed and done anything in this world. And he's a pretty cool dude. He said that God, that God he is the God of order and not confusion. And this, this idea that, you know, we, we should be able to observe the natural world around us and put things in places because the world does seem like it is ordered and it's ordered because there's an order maker the, the world does seem designed because there is a designer. And so I think, and so, so I'm just a fan, I'm not a fan of the Apollo's theory just because it adds to so much confusion of like just putting things into that view rather than going out and observing and then making conclusions about what you have observed. It's kind of like this philosophical exercise. Maybe some of you uh, did this in high school or have heard of this before. This idea where, well, some, where someone will say, the universe was just created five seconds ago. 
And you're like, what? That's stupid. And you're like, yeah, can you disprove that? And you're like, can I what? Can you disprove that the universe wasn't just created in motion like all of us right here? Well, now, like 15 seconds ago, the world was just created. It's like, well, I, I remember what I had for breakfast. I, 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 no, it wasn't created. And you say, no, you remember what you had for breakfast. You were created in motion with that memory. And so you just existed now 20 seconds ago. And you're like, no, I mean, I have my coffee cup right here. And I got the coffee earlier. So then it's here. And it's like, no, you have the memory that you got the coffee earlier and then put it right there. It's like, that's just insane. And, and there's this blog. I just mentioned this because I just laughed hysterically when I found this. Um, someone like put this question on a blog, like there's blogs, you know, and someone put the question, um, let's see, put the question, they worded it like this. The universe was created five seconds ago, period. Can you disprove this? And that was posted in 2006. And one person since then made a post and then that post has stayed since 2006. The post was by Ethan, who has a Nintendo character as an icon. Um, Ethan said, to the question, the universe was created five seconds ago. Can you disprove this? Ethan says, don't be stupid, comma, please. <laughs> and I just thought that was like, what a great response. Like, it's like why even engage that? It's just silly. Um, and so it's, 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 so it's because I think the, the going back to this quote that, that we put on the sweet quote of the day on the back of your skillet, there's always a sweet quote, that, that God is the God of order and not of confusion, that that he is a great designer, he is a great order maker, and out of that we can make observations and, and view the beauty of creation and the order and the design of it. And, and so I don't think God just put dino bones in the earth just to confuse us. I, I think there has, I think, I think and, it is, and maybe you have the Impalos view, but I would just say I would agree with like Newton and the, this, these, this great idea that God created uh, in, in a perfect way and called it good and, and that we can now observe these things and, and that's the way it is. So um, without any further ado, um, I thought it might be cool to re-bring up these four views and I quickly already went over them, but to, uh, we didn't have time last week to have a discussion, but I wanted to make time for discussion, so we'll do this now. And I, I thought it would be cool if you like paired up or got in groups of three so that each one of you can talk um, and just ask what are you? <laughs> and then, of course, you're referring to what view are you, young earth, gap theory, progressive creationism, or theistic evolution. Um, and, and the main difference between progressive creationism and theistic evolution is if you believe that, God, that no new species evolved and God created um, new species at certain times, you'd be a progressive creationist. If you're a theistic evolution, you'd say, well, maybe God just put it all in motion and then life evolved from there. Uh, young Earth is, of course, a six-day literal creation. And then the gap theory is a literal six-day creation, but with the Earth looks very old because there was a gap in between verses 1 and 2 or 2 and 3. So turn to a neighbor and, and find someone, at least one person, and just ask them, what are you? And then kind of ask them why. Ready? Get set, go. What are you? Let's pull it all back together. Uh, I thought uh, what we could do is have at least one person from each view. So four people stand up and say why they are, if you're a young earth creationist, why you're a young earth creationist, why you're a gap theorian, why you're a progressive creationist, or why you're a theistic evolutionist. And so um, so if someone in your group was like, oh, you, you should talk, you have something to say, then you should say it. Because this is not a debate. Okay, what we're about to do is not a debate. I'll say it four times. This is not a debate. It's not a debate. It's not a debate. It's not a debate. This is uh, just a discussion. You just get out. You're not responding to each other or uh, engaging in a debate. Uh, by any means, you're just like, hey, I'm the, I have this view. Here's why. And then someone else, just, and so you, everyone's just respectfully nodding, like, oh, you have that view. That's why you have that view. Got it. So do we have, a, let, let's go in order. Uh, do we have a volunteer for Young Earth creationism? Anybody? Yes, thank you so much, Emily. Hi, my name is Emily. Why I am a Young Earth creationist. Um, multiple reasons. Some of them would be... Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is when you are 
starting out in a book and you're wanting to define something, often you need to use the truest definition of, of it to be able to define it. So on that basis, I say, well, that's one point that argues for it is if you're going to say this is how long a day is, then I want to start out with the true definition, and I mean a day. And so there's that argument. And then there's the other argument that modern science has shown that fossilization can happen very quickly. Thus, why should we say that all fossilization that we've seen happened over an extremely long period of time when we've seen in recent history that this is not true, that fossilization can happen very quickly. So this could also explain why there are fossils in rock layers, that it could have happened very quickly, especially through a catastrophic event like a worldwide flood. Oh, dang. And then um, another thing that, or that makes me say I don't agree with um, an old earth theory is carbon dating has been proven to be wrong. It is not consistently right. So why should I say that if your method for dating has been proven to not be accurate, how can we make that our basis of truth? That the earth is this old when this, the only method they're using to date it is that, other than what our current ancient history has proven for aging things. Like ancient Egypt, we have documents that give us a time period. And then with that, if you had a catastrophic event like a worldwide flood, this would explain so much more like if there were a canopy of water enveloping the earth, it would have created an air pressure that would have made it capable for animals of such stature to exist, like dinosaurs. And okay. why people could have existed for so long if it's through the oxidation of your blood that keeps you youthful and regenerates your cells. This would also explain why people could have lived so long at that time period, because it'd be like the fountain of youth. You're breathing perfect air. You're not breathing in toxins that then your internal organs are, your, you know, your um, lungs, as your blood pumps through, is oxygenating that blood with, with bad air that's then carrying toxins to all your internal organs. Instead, you'd be breathing perfect air that would keep your organs living well, and it would mean your food is like the ideal nutrition. You couldn't get bad food. So people would live longer. Organic. There wouldn't be things like cancer, which is the mutation. Or you would probably see these death and decay and mutation, but not at the rate or extent that we see it today, which would also explain with this fountain of youth and the good air, you'd have these giant animals that once that left, they'd all die. And they couldn't exist anymore because the air's not... They can't live with this size lungs, just like we also see um, giants in our age. You know, the few people who have made it into the Guinness Book of World Records for being so big, they can't live once their bodies get that large because of Good. airflow. And they all seem yeah. to die of heart and bone disease. And Someone so, has studied this before. <laughs> yeah, so it would explain why you wouldn't see these things anymore. You'd have fast fossilization. You'd have rock layers through a catastrophic event that would have moved the world around and shifted things. And then people, from that point on, you'd have a new aging system because the air is different, which could also explain why carbon dating doesn't necessarily work. Yeah, I liked your line about if your dating methods don't work, then don't do it. <laughs> Piece of advice, guys. <laughs> yes, thank you, Emily. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Emily. That, that was awesome. And that, that really does sum up lots of different things within the view of young earth creationism and why, like fossil layers, etc., carbon dating. Thank you very much. All right, we need three more volunteers. One next for the gap theory. Anyone want to go for the gap theory? Nobody? It's a pretty good theory. You don't like it? No one was a gap. Last week we voted, and there was some of you that were, this is probably the least common view, but it was a view that, that some of you voted for. A, a literal six-day view, but then a gap of why the earth looks older. Anybody? Nobody? Not even one. Do I have to? Yes, we do have one. Thank you so much. Um, and then get ready, if you're, get ready to, to be the next two as well, if, if you want to go for it. Thank you so much. I'm actually not a gap theorist. Okay. But I know what it is. So <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Uh, is gap theorist is like when it says the earth was void 
and the Holy Spirit brooded over the waters. Mm-hmm. The gap theory basically says that the original Hebrew says the earth became void and the Holy Spirit brooded over the waters. So basically, uh, in between uh, the God creating the heavens and the earth and it becoming void, all this stuff happened, and nobody knows how long it is. But yeah. my view is that <laughs> if God didn't create the earth in six days, then at what point does he stop lying? And that's just me. What point does he what? Stop, stop lying. Stop, stop lying. <laughs> stop lying. <laughs> uh, okay, what, so the next view, progressive creationism you you want yes go ahead get the, get the mic to her and then and then someone do we have someone for theistic evolution after that okay maybe maybe aaron higgins okay go ahead well please. i don't know um but i i guess i would lean more towards progressive because and this just kind of goes into like god's timing and how we can't conceive that and um like there's this first and second peter that says uh with the lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day so right. What, who is to say that God's day is our day, you know? Yeah. So. You'd be a progressive, a, a, a progressive creationist. Maybe God created over six errors or ages, yeah. maybe. But I don't know. And like Kristen said, my friend Kristen, um, she said that if, you know, if God didn't do it in six days or like if we don't believe that God did it in six days, then are we saying that God's not big enough to do it in six days? Oh, yeah. But I lean more towards progressive, I think. That's good. Yeah. And Aaron, why don't you share our... Yeah, Aaron, go ahead. Aaron... Well, I, I, I kind of straddle both theistic theories. Theistic evolution. Uh, both progressive creationism and theistic evolution. Uh, what's the hinge point for me is the poor wording of the English language in its translation in Genesis. The word day, as we call it, is actually the word yom, Y-O-M in Hebrew. Now, in ancient Hebrew, Y-O-M, Yom, refers to a period of time. does not refer to day. It can be translated as day. We translate it as day. It's kind of a weak translation. This is where English language falls short. Uh, so I think hinging your creation theology based off of the English language, bad idea. Now, why straddle both creation, uh, progressive creationism and theistic evolution? I'm sorry, but... There's a lot of evidence to the contrary about carbon dating and that it is accurate. This isn't a debate, mister. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 can't, I can't say that science is totally wrong. I don't think that evolution in the sense of how it's being presented to us, dinosaurs becoming birds, I don't buy reptiles turning into birds. That You'd just say doesn't... God. I, I say Some, God, God intervened directly, new, crea- new creation throughout a period of time. Okay. But I also think that there are certain elements of science. God plays by rules that he put into motion. And therefore, why not have microevolution, changes of not necessarily species, but within species. We see that with dogs. Dogs came from wolves, but yet we have chihuahuas and Great Danes. Do the math, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> So I, I straddle both, both fields. Yeah, that's good. I see other hands, but I think what I, I think what we'll do just for time is we'll stop the debate here because I think sometimes discussion. the debate goes in between. Or it's not a debate. Uh, the discussion. <laughs> Dang it, <laughs> the discussion. Um, and I really hope. I think. I think. I think what we we. I think hopefully we can model this in-house discussion just as a preface to this whole thing because there are those of us. There's, there's four, I'm, I'm presenting four views. There's probably more views in between views. And, and we can get very debate-driven um, over these things. And it's, it is worthwhile, I think, to discuss. But I think once you get into debate and you start like, you're like, dude, your mom. And then you're like, what? No, that's, that's not fun anymore. But, but discussion is, is fun. Discussion is, and I think especially with this, this topic, it does have a lot to say about who our God is, how he created, how the biblical context uh, of the Genesis, which is the beginning of this awesome book that we have, the Bible, how do we interpret that? And then how does that lend itself into the other books and chapters of the Bible? There is a lot at stake. And so it is worthwhile to discuss, but I, I, I always kind of draw the line and say debate, especially within house, is often just such a bad, it's not just bad context, and you're like, you know, just 
getting mad at each other. I don't like that. And so to, sorry to cut the debate short. We have about 10 minutes left in which I want to break this the, into this topic of hermeneutics and exegesis of the Bible. Because all this month thus far, we've been talking about science and the Bible. Science, Bible. Bible versus science. Science versus the Bible. And now I, what I want to do with, with the rest of the time, the 10 minutes now, is to introduce really for next time, and hopefully many of you can be here, uh, and, and if not, we'll, we'll podcast it, this, this thing of, like, let's just go to the Bible now, and let's look at the Bible and, and open it up and, and, and do hermeneutics and exegesis, do things where we, we look at the, the context of when it was written, why it was written, who was the author, where did it come from, how would the ancient context... With, how they would have interpreted it. And I want to begin with a video clip of, of this guy, Professor N.T. Wright. Anybody ever heard of N.T. Wright? Oh, wow, I'm impressed. Lots of hands. It's because we're nerds of Sunday school. Um, I, I like that. I'm, I'm impressed that you, so many just raised their hands. But N.T. Wright is this uh, New Testament historical scholar. So he's a scholar of the Bible, but he's a, an a historian kind of first, uh, maybe a biblical a Christian first, because he is a, he's a bishop. Um, he's an English guy. And so we're going to see a video clip of him. And he has an English accent. And uh, N.T. Wright is really forming a lot of, uh, at least some of my thought, theological thoughts, because he asked this question about the Bible. Let's, let's, ha- let's understand how the Bible would have been interpreted in that time, and, and then from there, um, be faithful to the text, and then understand it for us today. And so this clip that you're about to see is like four minutes and 50 seconds, and I probably had to watch it like four times to get like what is he saying because he just he kind of speaks fast and he speaks about such huge sweeping ideas that that may be very foreign to some of us and he says let's um let's don't lump the issues you'll hear him say that of like if you're a young earth creationist then you have all these views and maybe even political views that go along with that and if you're an old earth creationist you could be oh they're just a liberal they're just you know blah 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 and all these views that go with it. he says let's not lump the issues let's take them one at a time he says let's lighten up you'll hear him say that You'll hear him say uh, the question of whether it's figurative or literal is a question we should ask later. It shouldn't be the first question we ask when we open up the book of Genesis. I think he says something like, let's go case by case um, in, in, the, in the Bible. Let's see this story. Maybe it's it's poem, but maybe this is historical narrative. Let's take them case by case. Uh, and then he gets into this idea of like the earth is God's temple in which he created it as his abode. And then he invites humans, he creates humans to live into it. He's kind of all over the place. Uh, the clip is called uh, Adam and Eve, and you could YouTube it. I got it from YouTube, um, so you can watch it later. But it is, to me, it's just fascinating, and it kind of frames the debate, uh, or excuse me, the discussion of uh, how things, how did God create? So, without further ado, N.T. Wright. I think the, the difficulty we have is that questions about the historicity of Genesis, questions about the historicity of Adam and Eve, get caught up in contemporary, particularly American culture. And as a Brit looking across the Atlantic, I see this rather more clearly because these are not questions which you regularly find asked in Britain at all. Occasionally on the side, but they're not big, buzzy issues. And they're certainly not umbilically linked to political issues, which is clearly the case here in America. But that then causes all sorts of problems, that people line up the political issues. You've got culture wars going on with the left and the right. You've got big political issues. Um, And and again, your your political issues. I know a lot of Americans, just like a lot of English people, don't understand French politics. So a lot of um, uh, Americans don't understand that the rest of the world really doesn't do it like that. We don't bundle up the issues that way, whether it's gun laws or abortion or whatever. We just don't make those connections. So that then uh, the the question of Genesis history or myth, these words uh, are hooked in to whole great uh, lists of other things. And people are afraid that if you start wobbling about there, oh my goodness, you're going to be denying this, you're going to be affirming that. And we need to lighten up, we need to uncouple those issues. And we need to say, okay, um, Genesis is one of those books like a Shakespeare play or like a Beethoven symphony or something where you can describe what it sort of literally says. Here's a Beethoven symphony, here are the notes, duh, 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 duh. And you think, well, um, 
that doesn't actually catch what's going on in this. And you want to use bigger language about the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. I'll say that this is an amazing statement about the, 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 the power of empire and the fate of man and goodness knows what. Um, you still got to play the notes. Um, and in the same way, I want to say Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are some of the most explosive chapters. And when anthropologists talk about myth, what they mean is not an untrue story. What they mean is a story which is full of power for how we understand ourselves individually, for how we understand ourselves as a community, for how we understand what the human project is all about and some of its paradoxes and tragedies and so on. The mythological element, however, has got misunderstood to be if it's myth, therefore it isn't history and vice versa. And that's just for starters. We need to lighten up about these words and maybe find some other words. Um, because I do think it matters that something like a primal pair getting it wrong did happen. But that doesn't mean I'm saying that therefore Genesis is kind of positivist, literal, clunky history over against myth. Um, far from it. I think, for instance, that the six days of Genesis, I'm with John Walton from Wheaton College on this, I think the six days of Genesis would be interpreted in terms of this is how you describe how people make a temple or a tabernacle. This is a way of saying that when the good creator God made the world, he made heaven and earth as the space in which he himself was going to dwell, and he shared the earth bit with human creatures. And you know, to flatten that out into this is simply telling us that the world was made in six days is, is almost perversely to avoid the real thrust of the narrative. And when I then find that people who say, oh, it must have been made in six days, etc., also have a very dualistic view about how one day God is going to throw the present space-time universe in the trash can and leave us all sitting on a cloud playing a harp, um, I say, clearly you just haven't been reading the same Bible. The meaning of Genesis is that this world was made to be God's abode, God's home, God's dwelling. He's shared it with us, and he now wants to rescue it and redeem it. So that we have to read Genesis for all it's worth, and to say either history or myth is a way of saying, I'm not going to study this text for all it's worth. I'm just going to flatten it out so that it conforms to the cultural questions that my culture today is telling me to ask. And I think that's a form of actually being unfaithful to the text itself. You did? I had to watch it a couple times to understand what in the world he was saying uh, and write it down, but... I think what he has to say, and that's N.T. Wright again, is, is let's, let's not just read Genesis and jump right into debating science and Bible, but let's read Genesis first and study, apply, uh, exegete, hermeneutically study the book of Genesis first and then make some of those decisions. That's kind of what the big point that I got out of it, which goes against maybe this sentence and maybe... Um, you've heard this before. Maybe you've said it before. Um, a non-literal biblical interpretation is a slippery slope, meaning, oh, if you can't take the book of Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through uh, the, the whole first chapter of Genesis literal, then how do you take Jesus coming and dying on a cross as literal? If you can just say, oh, I don't like this, I do like this, I don't like that one, that, that must just be myth and that must be true, how can you... How can you do that? The non-literal biblical interpretation is a slippery slope. Um, I'm sure you've heard that idea. It's, it's an idea that uh, that many six-day literal creationists have because it is scary to, to begin to, oh, if that's not literal, then what else is not literal? Um, but here's what I would say. I've never said this out loud, but I, in my head I think it's really funny. Um, so, so bear with me. A non-literal biblical interpretation of the Bible is a slippery slope. My response so is Breckenridge. <laughs> is that not funny? <laughs> okay. Um, meaning this, and I, I don't mean to just joke around about something that is very holy, but this idea that 
Breckenridge is a ski resort. It's, it is a slippery slope. Strap on skis, strap on a board, and, and it's about the journey. It's about skiing down. It's about being on the slope and not just being so afraid of slipping that, that you're, you're just, I don't want to even go there. And it's like, no, you can go there. You can strap on skis and, and have a, a good, meaningful journey while you're on the way. I do think the slippery slope argument works with some um, things, some arguments like, don't try drugs. Drugs are a slippery slope. That makes sense. Yeah, you'll slip and then you'll, you'll be doing harder drugs and your, your life will go down the tubes and your health will go bad. That's a slippery slope. Don't try drugs. We're not talking about drugs here and trying them. We're talking about reading the Bible here. That's, it seems like a good thing. Reading, applying, digging deep into the Bible and not just putting up a barrier that says... It has to be literal. I don't want to look any further. I don't want to look any deeper. Um, and, and you may have something like this. Um, I know that I've, I've kind of um, struggled with this over time. It's like, oh, if one passage isn't literal, then maybe it's, it's, it's meta- metaphorical. And, and so at the top here, we have some words, which many of these words would apply to several passages in the Bible. It's, I think of the, the, the gospel accounts of Jesus and resurrection would be literal. They'd be historical. They'd be eyewitness accounts, many of them. They'd be testimony. Those are all um, very uh, maybe true or historically true things. But at the bottom, we have uh, metaphorical, figurative, poetic, parable, uh, theological narrative. And I think there's this tendency that we want to say the top stuff is true and the bottom stuff is not true. It's false. And to that, I would say that, that's not how we should look at the Bible. And I think N.T. Wright in that very short but meaningful clip said something like that, that, that even though there's figurative language, it doesn't mean it's not true. Even though Jesus tells a parable of, let's say, the Good Samaritan, the parable's true, even though the, it didn't actually happen. And so to, to bust out of this, this literal versus figurative account and say one's true, one's false, is really where we're going to go next week. And I, I hope a lot of you can make it or, or podcast it, because um, I think that that debate is so central to how we read and, and, and apply the Bible to our lives. And I think that even though the slope may be slippery, it is about the journey and it is about going deeper into the text. And, and maybe you'll go deeper into the text and find out that, yes, you really are a six-day literal creationist, but, but do it. Go, take the journey, dive into it, and, and, and apply it and, and hermeneutically expose it and, and look at the languages, etc. And so, so that's this, this he- very heady talk that we did today will lead into next week where we, where we open up Genesis 1 and we study it and, and read it and go through it. And um, it's, it's with that that I think maybe we should close in prayer now in, in hopes of, of really digging into this next week. So God, we do praise you. God, we thank you. We put you in your rightful place that you are God, that we are not God, that you are a creator that you did make all of this, the beauty, the design, the awesomeness of your creation. God, we, we worship you because, because you are awesome. We put you in your correct place as creator. And God, even though there is confusion and discussion over how you did create these, these things, God, we pray that you would illuminate our, our thoughts, illuminate the, the text of Scripture to us, that we might understand truth from it and be formed by it. So God, we love you. We praise you. It's in these things that we pray. Your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. You're officially dismissed. Go in peace. Hopefully we'll see you next week. But uh, not on Friday. The mill is uh, canceled for Thanksgiving break. Peace out.